morning. Music on. It's a lot more people here than there were on Friday. <laughs> I'd like to start off with a story about Walt Disney's road to success. As a young man, Walt Disney was fired from the Kansas City Star newspaper and, went, and then went on to form an animation company called Laugh-O-Gram Films in 1921. Using his natural salesmanship abilities, Disney was able to raise $15,000 for the company. However, he made a deal with a New York distributor, and when the distributor went out of business, he was forced to shut Laugh-O-Gram down. Out of another job, Disney could barely pay his rent and even resorted to eating dog food. Broke but not defeated, Disney spent his last few dollars on a train ticket to Hollywood. Unfortunately, though, his troubles were not over. In 1926, Disney created a cartoon character named Oswald the Rabbit. When he attempted to negotiate a better deal with Universal Studios, the cartoon's distributor, he found out that they had secretly patented the Oswald character and continued the cartoon without Disney's input and without pay. As if that wasn't enough, Disney also struggled to release some of his now classic movies. Mickey Mouse was told that it would fail because the mouse would terrify women, and I see where that one comes from. Uh, distributors also rejected the three little pigs, saying it needed more characters. Pinocchio, Bambi, and Fantasia were all misunderstood by audiences at the time of their release, only to become classics later on. Perhaps Disney's greatest example of perseverance occurred when he tried to make the book Mary Poppins into a film. In 1944, at the suggestion of his daughter, Disney decided to adapt the Pamela Travers novel into a screenplay. However, Travers had absolutely no interest in selling Mary Poppins to Hollywood. To win her over, Disney visited Travers at her England home repeatedly for 16 years. And after more than a decade and a half of persuasion, Travers was overcome by Disney's vision for the film and finally gave him permission to bring Mary Poppins to the big screen. The result is what some people would say a timeless classic. In a fitting twist of fate, the Disney Company went on to purchase ABC in 1996, and at the time, ABC was the owner of the Kansas City Star, meaning that the newspaper that once fired Disney had become a part of the empire he created. All of this can be attributed to his perseverance. When we were first given the topics for our lessons this week, I had just recently read this uh, story about Walt Disney, and I was trying to think of a character I could apply it to, and I kept coming back to Joseph. We all know the story of Joseph, and it's one that we've been taught from a young age. And as I've grown up, I've started noticing different themes throughout Joseph's story. And now that I'm at the ripe old age of 17, I read this story and can't help but focus on Joseph's perseverance. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 28, we begin to see the first of Joseph's many struggles. It reads, When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, Come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and further said to them, Let us not take his life. Reuben also said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. And they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? 
Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now, a couple things pop out at me when I read this story. The first being that his brothers are basically saying, you know, let's not kill Joseph because that would be bad. He's our own flesh. Instead, let's just sell him into slavery. I, I think the irony would be lost on them. So now we see Joseph, probably super confused, is why he's gone from the favorite son of his father to being sold into slavery by his own brothers. And at this point, I think it's safe to say that if we were in this situation, we would start to have some self-pity. But that's not the case with Joseph. He works as a slave in the house of Potiphar and works very hard until Potiphar puts him in control of his household. This success is short-lived, however, because Potiphar's wife begins her attempts to seduce Joseph, and although they fail, she twists the situation and tells Potiphar that Joseph was doing the seducing. Upon hearing this lie, Potiphar then throws Joseph in jail. This being the second of Joseph's major setbacks, it's definitely safe to say that some self-pity would be warranted here. Joseph's faith, however, remains unwavered, and he once again begins to work his way from bondage to glory. And in Genesis chapter 41, we see Joseph, who's been in jail for quite a while, called by Pharaoh to interpret a dream that no one else could interpret. Beginning in verse 15, we read, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph. In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. And behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I had never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. Yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they, that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. Then I awoke. I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears, full and good, came up on a single stalk. And lo, seven ears, withered and thin, and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And then the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. Then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one there who could explain it to me. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. And the, seven good ear, and the seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come, and the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So that's probably not exactly what Pharaoh wanted to hear from the dream, but it allowed him to prep for a great famine. So naturally, Pharaoh was very, very grateful to Joseph, and so he made him the second in command in all the land of Egypt. Joseph had so many setbacks that would prompt him to give up and surrender to the bitterness and hatred at the people responsible for his circumstances. And although I'm sure he had his doubts throughout his life, he didn't worry about what he couldn't control. Uh, the summer going into my freshman year of high school, my family took a vacation to Rio Dosa, New Mexico. Uh, one day we decided that we were going to go up to Ski Apache and look at the mountains. Well, those of you who have been to Rio Dosa and Ski Apache know that the drive is pretty treacherous, and it's enough to make a grown man cry, as my dad illustrated. 
This drive was the thinnest two-lane road that I had ever seen, and it goes straight up, just a winding road. Now, all of this would be bad, but it wouldn't be so bad if there hadn't been a guardrail. I don't know whose idea it was to have a winding road up a mountaintop without a guardrail, but I can pretty much assure you they didn't graduate near the top of their class. So here we are at what seems to be a drive to our death, and through the silence, I hear my mom say, I think I should drive, as if my dad wasn't already stressed enough. So after the much-needed comedic relief from my mom, we began the drive, throughout the entirety of which she voiced her discomfort and her desire to drive instead of my dad. After what seemed like hours, we reached the top of a gorgeous mountain and immediately forgot about how stressful the drive was. We live in a day and age where we want to control everything. We want to have the TV remote, we want to drive the car, and most importantly, we want to pick the restaurant we eat at after church. Just like Joseph, oh, this is all fine and dandy until the going gets tough and suddenly we're in a situation where everything is out of our control. Just like Joseph, we're put in a situation that we don't think we deserve, and although we want to drive up that steep mountain all by ourselves, we have to set aside our love of control and give God the keys to our lives. What follows may not be what we had imagined for ourselves, and it may not seem like things are getting better for us, but just like Joseph, when we relinquish our consuming desire to go through things alone and persevere through the trials in life, we are rewarded with a gift that we could never achieve if we did things our own way. Throughout the Bible, we see numerous people persevere through daunting trials and triumph over them. Jesus, for example, was nailed to a cross, and even though he could have called 10,000 angels and free himself, he endured the pain so that we might have a chance at salvation. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. As I close this sermon, I challenge everyone to give God the keys to our lives and empty ourselves out to him. And although it can and will be difficult, the reward is much greater than the risk. Thank you. Good morning. Have you ever been riding in the car with your family and y'all are trying to decide somewhere to eat and everyone agrees on the one place you don't want to go? And so, you know, you don't want to say anything and you're just going to let them have it. So you kind of just lean back in your seat, let out a sigh, maybe look out the window kind of dramatically. And no one has to ask you what you think because they can tell by the way you're acting. They can tell by your body language and your facial, ex and your facial expression. In 1947, Jackie Robinson made history when he became the first African-American to play baseball in the major leagues. Some of his players, some of his teammates, however, were not very excited about this. And they threatened to go on strike, and they even started a petition. So the petition circulated the, the clubhouse, and eventually it got to the team's shortstop and the team's captain, Pee Wee Reese. And when Pee Wee Reese saw the petition, he looked at it, he crumbled it up, and he put it in his back pocket. He didn't go talk to the coach. He didn't go talk to the management or the club owner. He didn't go scold the teammates on what they were doing and how wrong it was. He simply just took the petition, crumbled it up, and put it in his back pocket. Pee Wee Reese took a silent stand for Jackie Robinson, and he stood up for what was right. In Daniel chapter 1, it talks about the choice young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were to be educated and appointed to the king's personal service. After some time, the king Nebuchadnezzar decided to build this golden image. 
And as you know, the herald in chapter 3, verse 4 through 7, commanded that anyone who did not bow down and worship this golden image would be thrown into the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, however, being the God-fearing men that they were, they did not bow down and worship the image. And after they get brought before the king, at the end of verse 15, the king asked them, he said, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? The three men were then tied up and thrown into the furnace. And when the king saw a fourth man in the furnace walking around who had an angel-like appearance, and he saw that they were unharmed, he came and he said to them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. And after all the priests and the officials saw that they were not burned or marked, the king proclaimed, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He goes on to say in verse 29, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish leap. Inasmuch there is no other God who can deliver in this way. Oftentimes we think of leaders who are people who give orders, who are vocal, who give commands. We see something very different here shown by these three men. That leading is not always about being vocal or commanding others to do what is right. It's showing them. These men have the faith and the courage to stand up for what is right. And by doing so, they led a king to be God-fearing. They led a king to realize that there is one true God, and he is all-powerful. And they did all of this without saying a word. I mean, they literally just stood there while everyone else bowed down around them. And sometimes it can be that easy. But not everyone can be a preacher, an elder, a song leader, or whatever the role may be. But we are still called to lead. Everyone in this room is called to lead by the example that we set. Leaders don't always have to be vocal. Leaders can lead in silent ways, maybe by the hard work that they do, maybe by the consistency of their attitude or their willingness to learn. In this passage, it never mentions that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go out and always praise, to the ma- praise God in front of the masses, but it shows us the power in leading by example and standing up for what's right. God calls us to lead in silent ways all the time, just like he called Daniel. Daniel's path to becoming a leader started early in his life when he was chosen as one of the king's young men. But he refused to defile himself with the king's food. He asked to be fed vegetables instead of the meat and to drink water instead of the king's wine, as it says in chapter 1, verse 8. So what Daniel does, so the overseer was afraid that they would look, that Daniel and his friends would look distraught and look more haggard than the other men. So Daniel convinces him, he says, compare us after a few days, let's see what it looks like. And after a few days, the overseer comes back in and he sees that Daniel and his friends were in better shape than the other men who had been eating the king's food. Daniel, in a silent but yet bold attempt to resist sin and temptation, trusted God that he would watch over them. In verse 17 of chapter 1, it reads, As for these young men, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. God blessed Daniel and his friends for standing up for what is right. We see Daniel earned the king's trust and respect because of his wisdom and the ability that God gave him to interpret dreams. Daniel was blessed by God for his actions, and in return, he was becoming a leader in the kingdom. And later on in the book of Daniel, when King Darius planned to appoint Daniel over the entire kingdom, some of the other officials plotted against him. They convinced the king to to build a statue, and they said, if anyone were to be caught praising other gods or worshiping other idols, they would be thrown into the lion's den. Daniel being the man that he was, continued to pray and to worship God. So the king finds out, as you know, Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. And King Darius, once he hears that Daniel was unharmed, 
he comes up and he proclaims that the God Daniel serves is all-powerful and that he is the only God. And once again, Daniel, by continuing to do what he believes is pleasing to God, proves to a king and to a nation that there is only one God. He became a leader among men, not through his ambition, through his self-promotion or by his campaigning, but by doing what was right. The same should be true with us today. Being a leader does not always require someone to preach or to lead a Bible class. We are called to be Christ-like. And if we strive to please God instead of men, then we will show others the way and we will lead others to Christ. And besides, we're all preachers here anyways. Everyone in this room, your life is a lesson that continually you preach to others. So live your life in a way that would please God instead of men. Be bold. And remember that being a leader doesn't always require you to be vocal, to be commanding of others. Sometimes being a leader means meeting people right where they are and showing them the way and walking with them. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this great day that you blessed us with. Thank you for the opportunity to gather here and to worship you. Please help us to live lives that glorify you. Please help us to be bold and to do the right things. And let it be our goal to bring others to you by the way we live and by the way we love. In Jesus' name, amen. I know as I stand up here that all of you are just as encouraged and proud at this time as I am. To see that we have, first off, Landon, Ender, thank you all very much. Y'all did a great job, fabulous job. You know, one of the things that's been going through my mind is I've thought about having 20 of these 20 young men attend preacher training camp this last week. I think about all of the youngsters, all the teenagers in school, just waiting for that summer break. Because as soon as that last bell rings, they're ready to hit the pool, they're ready to hit the golf course, they're ready to go on vacation, sleep late, watch TV, video games. Think about all the leisure things that they're gonna be doing for the next three months. These young men, some of them finished school last Friday. Some of them school, finished school the week earlier. And they come right back, they come right up here to the church building and start another week of intense study so that they can better prepare themselves, so that they can become the fine young men, the young Christians that God wants them to be, so that they will be leaders in the church, continue to be leaders in the church, continue to be able to lead their family, prepare to lead their families one day. And that's dedication. And we just want to say thank you. We want to say thank you to all the young men. We want to say thank you to our ministers, our office staff. We want to say thank you to all of our members that had a, that had a role in supporting the school, for the families that hosted them this week, for those that prepared meals, for those that came from miles away so that they could teach and lead these young men. I hear Chris McCurley say time and time again about how this is his favorite week of the entire year, and it's easy to see why. So guys, we're very proud of you. Not only are you great young men, you're great Christians, you're great leaders. You know, I think about the fear. When you, when you poll people, what is the number one fear you have is stage fright. How many of us be willing to get up and do what these young men have just done? 
So our hats go off to you, and again, we thank you. We never want to leave an, an opportunity of us coming together without giving people the opportunity to express what they're, if they may have some special needs. There may be some people in our congregation that are not Christians, and they have been studying, and they know that what needs to be done. They know they need to put Christ on in baptism. And if that's your case, we're going to give you the opportunity in just a moment to come as we stand and sing. If you'd like to put Christ on in baptism, some of you may be just having personal struggles. You may need prayers of the congregation. We're going to give you that same opportunity as we stand and sing. You can come forward and you can ask for prayers of the church for whatever your problems may be. There may be some that are needing of prayers and are needing a visit, needing counseling. You may not feel comfortable walking to the front, and that's okay. Please see one of our ministers, one of our elders, at the conclusion of this service, and we'll help you in any way that we can. Whatever your needs are, we would ask for you to come and seek the encouragement and help that you need as we stand and sing. <laughs> 